0: All right, here we go. Take one. Sometimes we come across individuals who may think differently than us, but are seeking the exact same thing. Nothing new happens unless you have great communication, with those that have differing ideas. And that's what today's episode is about. You know, for the very first time in our podcast where we are gonna have a guest, and I'm not running this as an interview, but instead a discussion about those very topics that nobody seems to wanna talk about. Why? Well, if we don't discuss them, maybe it doesn't exist. The less we talk about it, the easier it is to sleep at night. Or maybe we don't talk about it, especially around our children, because we believe that it's going to taint their innocence. I doubt it, seriously, because most likely they have seen those things that we pretend don't exist. You know, with suicide rising, they probably have had friends who took their lives. Sex, which is usually a forbidden act, you know, creates a confusion between right and wrong. Since they're told it's wrong, but for many males and some females, it runs through their heads as a strong desire to do. All of these things that we don't wanna talk about are left for them to deal with alone and probably scared. Sometimes our perceptions of what is right and what is wrong can be based on biases, opinions, and perceptions that are flawed. Maybe we're anxious or we're nervous or uncomfortable about discussing certain things. So we don't. Why? For selfish reasons. Please stay tuned so that you can meet my guest, Jay Schiffman, as we have an open and honest discussion about those things nobody wants to talk about. Stay tuned. The story This is not a property of drugs, but a property of people. My name is Eric McCoy, and welcome back to High Wall Clean. Jay Schiffman, my guest today, is the host of a podcast called Choose Your Struggle, and I believe it can probably be found anywhere that you get your podcast. He is a public speaker and a coach, and you know it sounds like we have very similar mindsets, and he had pointed out in his request to me to come on the show that You know, each year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. And I don't believe this includes, you know, murders, DUI deaths, and all the other preventable losses from substance abuse. The changes needed are extensive from our legal standpoint, our educational systems, looking at the vast misinformation. Honest communication is needed to save lives which is i think going to be our focus today around these topics and i'm very excited to have him on here because we are going to discuss ideas and different ideas from a very open mind and you know for those that know me know that i am extremely open-minded to different things you know the statement that you made um you know, it's kind of been the slogan for COVID, and that we're all in this together, <laughs> which I do agree with. But before I actually start, Jay, I want to thank you for doing this and joining me today on this.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Eric. I, I always appreciate every opportunity to discuss these issues, especially even more so with people who get it. And and uh, those of us who do this sort of work like you and I do, uh, it's it, it even when we don't come from the same you know, experience of getting into recovery or substance misuse or whatever, we can come together around this idea that something needs to be done because it's not like we're crushing this thing as a, as a world, as a country, we are far from batting a thousand as as they say. So uh, the great, the greatest conversations are people who come to this exactly, as you said, with an open mind and well, let's, let's figure out ways that we can do this a little bit better.
0: I've done podcasts on like the legal aspects of stuff and when we look at you know all the laws that have been passed all you know throughout all the years none of them based on evidence has anything to do with caring of the health of our people nothing but I want to do something really quick before we start this um, I want to get to know you a little bit and so um, I just want to ask you a quick question here what brought you to this place to where you're Fighting this advocacy, you know this idea that, you know, I think I believe, and you're we're kind of in a similar category that you love the people out there that are struggling and hurting, and we're, you know, I've said on on this podcast many times to all of those out there struggling, I love you, because I doubt you hear that very often. So, what what brought you to this place?
1: Yeah, and and that's such a powerful statement uh, because uh, as as someone who's now going on 11 years in recovery, it isn't something that we're told a lot when we're at our worst, it's always, this is what you're doing to me, or this is how you're hurting me. And so if you are currently struggling and you just need someone who understands, you know, guys like Eric and I are just, we're not here to, to shame you or all that dangerous BS. We're, we're here to say, look, we've been there, you know, and we understand how you're feeling. Um, that is the answer to your, your question. I honestly, you know, I spent the first five plus years in recovery uh, being ashamed and, and, and you know, buying into that stigma that this isn't something to talk about. This is something to keep quiet, um, that it was some kind of a failure, a mark of, of fail of a failure. and. Uh, it finally, it took, uh, on election night of 2015, an opportunity to get up on stage and tell my story in front of 100, 150 or so people, uh, some of whom were very close friends who didn't know this about me. Um, and that night changed my life. And here, now here I am six years later doing this for a living. But it took a lot to overcome that stigma and to embrace the fear that was keeping me quiet about something that that I saw as a failure, but isn't, it, it, not at all. Mm-hmm.
0: These are topics that don't want to be discussed. These are topics that um, everybody's fearful of. You know, if we talk about this, it's going to attract people to want to do it almost. (laughs) All of the ones that I've done where I talk about with my guest, child abuse or certain various topics, they're not advertiser friendly. And even, even though they have nothing to do with, you know, obviously promoting it, we're not showing it, we're just talking. And I think that's crazy. Uh, I mean, none of that matters to me as far as that goes, but I just kind of find it the way that our society is today. We don't want to talk about this stuff.
1: Yeah, well, you make a really great point there. In, in my podcast, I all of my episodes are marked explicit, not because, uh, and I do, you know, cause up a storm, but because the subject matter is deemed explicit. And, um, you know, I got the heads up from other people in this space early on that if you don't do that, you run the risk of one day waking up and all your episodes being gone and all it takes is one person complaining. Uh, and, and and it's so sad that these are things that, you know, the average person may or probably will struggle with. And yet, um, you know, we can't talk about them. And I just think it's, it's, if, if you change substance misuse to, to cancer, no one's marking a cancer podcast explicit, mm-hmm. but when we're talking about things like, you know, mental health and, uh, you know, especially suicide, if you, you know, that is sort of such a, a taboo that even those of us who do this, you know, we kind of call it the, the double taboo, right? You're already talking about mental health and then you go beyond that to talk about suicide. So it, it is sad that the, we still think of it that way, but that's why it's so important. People like you and I keep doing what we're doing because we're challenging that every day by putting out content where we address these things head on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we talk about our our like, educational system with our kids, um, you know, that, that obviously is a very touchy one. Um, you know, we hear all the time that, you know, again, parents don't want, you know, people to come in and talk to kids about substance abuse or mental health or suicide or, you know, any of these things because it'll put, stress within the kids or it'll put fear within the kids even though i don't believe any of that's true yeah i think yeah i'm with you
1: uh and and the the data backs our views up not the other side. In fact, I had a a duo on my podcast. Uh, It's a father and daughter team. They do a podcast called Leaving the Valley, and it's all about suicide prevention and and education. And uh, that's what they do for a living. The the one guy is a psychologist, and, and they put out this podcast. And what he said, where that comes from, is there's a kernel of truth in there. And that is, if you report on suicidal methods, those methods do see a spike. What that doesn't mean is that talking about suicide leads to suicide, which is what people have taken that kernel of truth and exploded it to mean. And so his whole point is it's so harmful to allow this sort of reality that we're in right now, where if someone famous commits suicide, it's all over the news, how they did it, everything leading up to it. But if the average person takes their own life, no, 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 don't talk about that because other people might do it. It almost doesn't, it makes you just pull your hair out if I if I still had hair, because it doesn't make any sense rationally, it makes no sense. But we allowed this narrative to continue.
0: I I wrote a book called pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. And one of the things that I get into, and I talk about in one of the chapters, that's specific to our youth has to do with, you know, and I kind of want to get your opinion on this, too, is, you know, with, you know, when I was a kid, we were bull. I was bullied all the time. I mean, bullying is not something new, but suicide rate has gone up. And we hear a lot of this has a result to do with the bullying that, you know, and I think the big difference, obviously, when I was growing up versus today is social media. I mean, we didn't have social media. So the bullying ended at school Mm -hmm. where nowadays the bullying is a continuing process on Facebook or, you know, Instagram or, you know, the TikTok or whatever they have out there (laughs) today. And what are your thoughts on that? Is, you know, if we were to look at like, you know, ideas as far as how to help, do you think that's a big part of it? And what do you think we could do about it? Well, I think,
1: yes, you make an excellent point. And, and, you know, even I'm just old enough to remember not having the internet, you know, I was born in 86. And so uh, the internet was not a thing we just had in our house until I was about 13. And you're right. I mean, if if I needed to be in touch with someone from school, whatever, you would to call a landline. And it wasn't like our our parents weren't overhearing. So they're really you're, you make a great point. I'm not getting bullied over the landline. That was not a thing. You know, that being said, yes, of course, the Internet makes it way easier and that in that is a huge issue, but there's a lot of other factors there too. You know, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. The fact is that it's more and more likely uh, that a child is going to be in a house where both parents are working every year. I mean, that, that figure goes up as, as probably should be, but also because the, the, the dollar goes so much uh, less far now as it did when even when I was growing up, you know, 20 years ago. And so that second parent is needed to work more, or if you're in some households, as many as two or three jobs. And so it's less likely that parents going to be able to be there to oversee something like this kid being bullied online, the way that they would have been 20 years ago, if, if internet would have existed. So, you know, I remember, I'm very lucky to come from privilege, there was never a situation where something like that could have happened, because my parents were always around. I Three younger brothers; they were always around. But this, we are becoming more and more siloed. I mean, as a culture, period. But especially in our in our homes, and when you add that to all these other factors, that is also a major, in my opinion, that is a major factor as well.
0: Yeah, I've always saw with substance abuse. You know, our 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 government. We look at policies. You know, most of the money, a good majority of the money, or even though I think it's less, it's it's better um, balance today a little bit has to do with reduced supply, reduced supply, reduced supply, you know, um, obviously it's not working. Um, I can go out there and get drugs anywhere. Yeah. I can go online and I can buy it and I teach at a school. And and one of the things that I talk about and I teach is, is reducing demand. So, you know, we, we, and I think that's where the majority of the money needs to go is to reducing demand. If we can get people to care about themselves, love themselves, to, you know, realize that, you know, raise my self-esteem, work on my confidence, work on, you know, my abilities to to handle the stressors of life. And I think that same thing kind of applies to suicide too, um, that, you know, if there's more emphasis in the schools input on you know people caring about themselves then bullying becomes less of an impact on us
1: well you, you make a lot of good points in there number one i i say this a lot when i speak that why is it i went to one of the best schools in the state of ohio why is it that i had health class i had pe but no mental health class you know why is it that uh, no one ever taught me how to take care of my, my mental health, how to do things for myself in that respect, we, you know, we had one school therapist, right? I mean, that's not, that's not getting it done. So yes, that is a major change. I, I agree that uh, this, this sort of trying to, to cut the supply is a vast failure. In fact, I was interviewing a, um, a law enforcement officer a couple of years ago, and he said, do you know what percentage of the drugs coming into this country that are, are you know, are, Police, our border agents, all of that uh, stop. And I said, I I don't know, 10, 20%. He said 3%. He said annually, it's roughly 3% of the drugs that come into this country are acquired by law enforcement. The other 97% is making it into people's homes. So if that's the case, we're not doing so hot, and we've never done very well on this. Now, the thing that I think is really important here is we learned this lesson in the 90s from sex education, right? There was this idea, if we don't give kids condoms, they won't want to have sex, which is ridiculous. I never was taught to use a condom. I still went out and had sex. Once I, I knew what a condom was, and I, I how to get one, I just had safer sex. So is there a big part of it that we should be teaching prevention? Of course there is. It's ridiculous that the only prevention is happening is usually just say no, which we know it makes things worse, not better, right? The, the data is there. We know that to be true. But also, we need to be having honest conversations with kids. About drugs, this you know, the things that even my generation got if drugs will kill you. Well, then when you go do it and you're not dead, you're all of a sudden, well, I shouldn't believe anything they say, right? I lived, it didn't kill me. So if we have these honest conversations, like here are the good things about drugs, here are the horrible things about drugs, especially someone like me who's struggling with their mental health as a kid, it's more likely you're gonna struggle with substance misuse. Maybe we should find some other ways for you to do positive things for yourself and delay drugs for a while until you're in a better position. That's a more honest conversation. That is a conversation a teenager is going to be more interested in having than just "don't do it because you'll die." Well, n- no, I didn't. I didn't die. Now I'm going to keep
0: doing drugs. That's exactly what I say all the time. You know, if if I go into the school and I want to educate kids, this is why I I titled this thing "High Walk Clean." I get high every day. I love to get high, but highness does not come from drugs. It comes from us. and all that stuff comes from within us. You know the dopamine and, you know, and all the drugs do is they just manipulate that and then eventually kill off that. So if I want to stay high the rest of my life, clean and sober for me, that's the only way that it's going to happen. And I think going in with that mentality of that honest communication, you're going to at least get people to listen. Yeah. And I love what you said, because, yeah, if, if I go in and I go in and say drugs are bad, drugs are horrible. And then you've got a whole group of people that are already in there that have already done it. They're like, you know what? You're full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden their ears close, and I'm not going to listen to anything you said. And and even more so.
1: Yes. I mean, in the school, that's a big piece. But at home, too, if mom is sitting there telling their kids not to do drugs while having a giant wine glass in her hand, how, how how are we not seeing that that isn't the right way to go about this? You know what I mean? Or or a cigarette or whatever the case is. You're underline, under undermining your own lesson while you're trying to give it. If you have these honest conversations like, yeah, drinking can be great. It can also be super dangerous and you can be crazy addicted to alcohol. Why don't we wait a little bit until you understand a little bit more about the, the goods and bads of this until you try it? having an honest two-way street conversation like that is only going to do better than just trying to drill it into them.
0: Yep. I mean, alcohol, you know, alcohol kills more people every year than all illicit drugs combined. As does nicotine. And those two things are very easy to get. They're both legal. Yeah. Which, which again, reminds me of how our laws have nothing to do with the health of people. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) If they did, those would be illegal.
1: (laughs) Well, it's interesting. So I do an entire presentation on helping people understand where our drug laws come from. It's it's sort of it started as a passion for me, you know, as a guy in recovery, wanting to understand this more. Uh, and then it became, a oh, my God, once I started really uh, diving in and, you know, some of our earliest drug laws include bigoted language in the law. You know, one of the very first drug laws this country passed in the early 1900s was an anti-smoking uh, opium law that specifically addressed Asian immigrants. And so when you see these things and you realize that the goal was never to keep people safe, it was only to penalize out groups, it starts making you uh, able to understand that, oh, oh, we can challenge some of these because they're incredibly outdated and very harmful.
0: Well, the Harrison Narcotics Act, which is probably the one you're talking about, has specifically to do with opium derivatives of that and the coca plant and derivatives of that. And of course the opium was the the Asians, Right? That's right. And the coca plant was the blacks. Right. And, and then and then you get the invention, of the word marijuana
1: to try to discriminate against Mexican Americans and immigrants. And yeah, I mean, once you start studying guys like Harry Anslinger, if you still believe in the, the sanctity of drug laws, I, I just I don't know what to tell you. I, I really don't. He, he was extremely racist. Openly so. And what's so amazing about Harry Anslinger is our government has spent a lot of time trying to uh, sort of justify a lot of his work and explain away a lot of his work. And yet we have copious amounts of writing from Harry Anslinger openly mm-hmm. saying that, that he's doing this for because of these racist ideas. So they're fighting a the losing battle because it's all out in the public and you get books like Chasing the Scream, which for those of you listening, if you've never read this book by Johan Hari, it was a New York Times bestseller. It's an incredible book where he lays out a lot of these things and kind of points at like, this is why this isn't working.
0: So I wanted to, I wanted to touch on, you know, we, when we had spoken on the phone and I think this is a great place to go into is the concept of harm reduction. Um, which for me, I'm a big fan of. I'm a big believer in Um, you've got a huge group of people out there that can't stand the concept of harm reduction. Um, I know your story and what we had talked about is a little bit um, steps aside from your traditional, you know, place of recovery um, that you are clean, but you do drink.
1: Yeah, I I can I don't like the word clean mostly because we've learned the where that word comes from and and so it is a word that a lot of people are trying to move away from. Um, I call myself in recovery. I'm not sober. That's what you're, you're saying that is very correct. And in fact, somebody asked me earlier today, it was the first time this has ever happened. I've been doing this for five years now, six years now. Someone said, well, but do you not use the word sober because of your literal definition? I said, no, it has nothing to do with it. It's because that is a dishonor to those people who work super hard to be quote unquote sober. And for me to use that word takes away from all the work they're doing that I'm not doing. And so in all of all of the work it takes for those who choose to be sober, I would never call myself that. Now, I will say that I was on this interview once and it was with a woman who runs an, a 12 step program and she refused to not call me that because her listeners were only the, sort of the most devout 12 step people. And in their mind, if you're not sober, you're not in recovery, which is a very harmful thing to think. But she could not. Not call me sober. And I apologize to some people in my life who are sober after that and said, I told her beforehand, I am not. I'm so sorry for the disservice I did to your journey. And of course, you know, that wasn't what they were the most worried about. I mean, this is a very harmful idea. But That is why I don't like calling myself sober. It's not because I do have a drink from now, from you know, time and time again. It's because I don't want to take away from people who are that committed to their own journey that they do believe that being sober is the right thing to do.
0: So you kind of sit on the model that you know it is. It's whatever works works. That's right, and that's kind of what you know our um, our goal is. And I believe that, and I and I always feel I do feel that. A lot of people in the 12 step program, they do do a disservice to people because once they hear something from somebody that they don't agree with, let's kick them to the curb.
1: That's right.
0: You know, and that sadly, I think is what happens to a lot of people. Um, You know, for me, like we were talking on the phone for me, um, you know, being I I have to stay off alcohol. I have to stay off all mind and mood culture and chemicals um, because I don't have that ability um, you know, and I, this has kind of been a thing for my entire life that once I do something that changes the way I think, or my ability to, or or experiencing that, you know, that, that drunkenness or getting out of my mind, I just want to go off the scale, you know, yeah. that's right. And I, I had to learn that many times. I tried that route for me. It was, you know, I wanted to be successful, happy and you know control in my life but I didn't want to be off everything. I that's right. tried that. I tried just the alcohol, I tried just the weed, I tried you know I was a meth addict so what's wrong with heroin, you know? <laughs> <what's>, <laughs> I tried it all, you know. Um and so I kind of eventually came to that place to where okay, this is where I need to go. But that's what works for me. And uh and it does work for me.
1: And what's so beautiful about that is that I would say that there are more and more people who are thinking the way you do which is Yes, this works for me. I also recognize that you know just because it works for me doesn't mean it should work for everyone. Same thing with my attitude, right? I can not have a drink. I would never in a million years tell every single person in recovery, "Hey, you should try having a drink. It's wonderful." That's just not how. It, it, it's not a very empathetic way to to treat somebody who's going through this. And so I do think that that idea that was started with 12-step that sobriety is the, is the opposite of addiction is dying out. And and you know we're we're replacing with this idea that whatever works for you you is the right thing for you. Um, And, and, you know, I am hearing so much less of that. In fact, I was at a conference would have been right before COVID started. So about a year ago Mm -hmm. and uh, the entire two day thing, the only mention of 12 steps was in the question and answer period. None of these were all scientists talking about different treatment models uh, specifically harm reduction and, and medically assisted treatment. And that, is sort of growing as the, when someone thinks of, you know, treatment for substance misuse, they think of this as opposed to 12 step. That being said, we went from that being 3% to that being 20% over the last 25 years still uh, is very much the smaller part of the recovery community.
0: I mean, I, I believe, you know, I mean, the 12 step program, that works great for a lot of people, you know, and I, (laughs) I was, you know, there's a book out there, some guy had written about debunking the 12-step program. And I always thought that was absolutely insane because it has helped, even you know, let's say it's helped 1.5 million people. Why am I going to try to debunk something that's helped 1.5 million people? Now it may not work for you, you know. So now let's look at maybe finding something else. You know. Um, I've always and I've I've asked a lot of the people that were just hardcore the 12-step people. And, you know, I've asked some questions like, what do you get? Aside from the steps, what do you get from Mm -hmm. the 12-step program? You know, and they always respond with, oh, you know, spirituality, uh, a support network, I get to work on myself. And then my, my next question is, is that the only place you can get that? You know, and they're like, well, no, So we don't need to get totally stuck on that. You know, that this works for me, so this has to work for you.
1: Yeah, and I I want to applaud people like uh, there's a doctor in California named Dr. Adi Jaffe, who I've been lucky enough to do some work with. And it's just a really tremendous guy who are, and guys like him who are trying to start 12-step-like communities that are not 12-step-based because that is one thing that that AA does incredibly well. And it's something I missed in my recovery journey is I went this el- – Pretty much alone and 12-step and does give you that community and there really isn't another group like that in that way where people can come together now there are some really incredible ones i don't want to diminish smart recovery in places like that but they're not as big or as well organized as 12 or aa is so i do want to give aa that and that's why i applaud these other groups who are working on that model that are not 12-step based because you're right you know, it's not like you can't find these things other places. And there are a lot of harmful things in there as a person who was born and raised Jewish and as- not really that spiritual. I would be very turned off if I had to say the Lord's Prayer going every time into, into a recovery meeting. That would be very difficult for me. Now, I was on an episode of a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a guy who calls himself the recovery atheist and he is able to in those moments sort of check out a little bit. But my question for him was was why? You know, why why is that the case that you can't go, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not Christian. Why do I have to say your prayer to be a part of this group?" That we wouldn't really be okay with that in other walks of life but we are in the recovery community
0: Mm -hmm. yeah you'll never find a better you know uh i guess if we could call it self-help group than the 12 step right now because it is everywhere i mean it's all over the united states it's all over the world and it's free (laughs) free, yes and so and that is powerful and i will say that um i know the 12 steps backwards and forwards i was it, it gave me a foundation myself and so I was heavily involved in it. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I got, I, I mean, the 12 step program is great for for a lot of people and it works well for a lot of people. Um, what are your, so I wanted to, I wanted to get your ideas on something here. And so when we look at the, the um, laws and things like that related to substance abuse, are you a fan of legalization?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I am, uh... I have sort of a view that we need to to diverge uh, individual substances out of this sort of context we've given them that all drugs are the same in some respect. You know, blanket answer, yes, I am in favor of legalization. That being said, uh, you know, we don't do that with other things. We don't do that. Oh, I can legally own a car. I'm going to go buy a spaceship. That is absolutely ridiculous. No one, we have separations for a reason. Why is it? That when it comes to cannabis and heroin, which have almost nothing in common, or if you want to take it a step farther, something that is completely manufactured, like, I don't know, meth, and you separate these things, they have nothing in common, but we're putting them in the same bucket and calling them drugs. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, if, if, if yes or no question, yes, I believe in legalization. Do I believe in just throwing everything up the way we are with cannabis? Absolutely not. I don't think that that would work the same way. I do believe, I actually have it on my Instagram right now, that a full-scale legalization of cannabis needs to happen in the near future, not just for those people who want to enjoy cannabis, but because it is is a social justice and a racial justice issue. When we have literally millions of people, most of them black and brown, sitting in jail over a plant that a rich white guy like me can invest in today, that's a problem.
0: Yeah, you know, I've, I've... Have you heard about those safe houses in in Canada?
1: Yeah. In fact, I'm moving to Philadelphia where they were trying to open the first one.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've actually been trying to to reach somebody up in Canada at one of those places. Um, But, you know, I've I've found those things fascinating and it makes sense because so many heroin addicts or you know, meth addicts or, you know, a lot of these people that they live underground. You know, they live in these places that we're never going to see them until we find them dead under under an overpass. And one of the reasons they never come out is the fear. Nobody wants to come out and get arrested. And, you know, so I'm just going to stay buried in a hole somewhere doing what I'm doing because I'm completely dependent. Now, if we open up a safe house and we basically say, look, here's a safe place for you to come. You can inject your drug here. We'll provide you with needles. We won't actually inject you ourselves. You have to provide your own drugs. But we, you know, are providing this place. And if you go into overdose, obviously, we got medical staff here that can pull you out of overdose. But it also brings up the idea that that moment when they say, you know what, I'm ready. I want to do something different. I want to get off this. You got about five seconds, right, to be able to, to, be able to grab those people, you know, and do something. Because, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that want to get off drugs, you know, that, that are so dependent. They're so tired of the lifestyle, but they don't know how to do it. And they'll have an um, instant where they say, okay, you know what? I'm going to get off this. And then 10 minutes later, they're like, "Yeah, screw that. I'm not going to get off it, you know? Um, And so if you have counselors or you have the, you know, the places for them to go right then, right there, that's when we're going to have success, you know? And I don't think, I don't believe that like a safe house is a promoting of drug use. I think it's a promoting of, okay, we're here for you, and we're here when you're ready to do something.
1: Yeah, I got a name for you. If you want to talk to somebody who's doing incredible work like that, his
0: name is Peter
1: Krykent, And Peter is in Scotland. He uh, is a former user, one of us. And uh, he fresh in recovery, was doing work on needle exchange and trying to help people uh, to help stop the spread of of AIDS in this community. And uh, he decided one day that he was tired of finding these people that he was working with dead of overdose in an abandoned building or whatever the case is. And Peter decided that he was going to do something about himself. Peter opened the first safe injection site in Scotland uh, by getting a van outfitting it, having uh, someone medi- who is medically trained on site, being trained in Narcan himself, having test strips available, sort of driving around. And uh, he's been doing it now for a couple of years. He just up, upgraded uh, to a, an old, uh, I think it's an ambulance. And I interviewed him for my podcast. He is an absolute frontline hero. Uh, he's been arrested. He has sat down with you know the, the members of parliament and to say, look, you, you, you're not going to stop me. I'm going to keep doing this. And so he's pushing them to, to try to legalize these these ideas and those are the people that i look up to because you know yes i think this advocacy is so important and and you know changing the hearts and minds is incredibly important peter and basically said screw it i'm gonna start doing this myself and i have just all of the love and and awe in the world for guys like peter because you're right it makes so much sense and it works in All the other places that do this outside of the U.S.'s sort of puritanical ideas around substance misuse. There's ample evidence that this is the way to do it. Uh, And unfortunately, we just have leaders that are unwilling to change their minds on this kind of thing.
0: Yeah, Because a lot of people believe that all these people that are out there dependent upon drugs, they want to be doing that. And I think this is another miss information that people have you know i've always said that drugs are fun when you choose to but once you have to that fun is gone that's right and you know i remember back in my past you know with you know i was in 2001 i was arrested four times in six months i was looking at 15 years in prison and you know i wanted nothing more than to stop i mean i had the task force that i knew was following me i mean they, they were two, two of those arrests were by this task force and i knew they were around I had an attorney that was telling me, you just need to go to jail. You just need to stay in jail because I keep getting arrested. And all I'm doing is stacking up my consequences. And I wanted nothing more than to stop. But I was so, I couldn't even imagine it. You know, the fear that I had, the hatred that I had for the drug, you know, for where I was at. But it was like that love-hate, you know, relationship. And I think that's just one of the things that a lot of people don't really think about is that, you know, a lot of these people out there, they hate what they're doing. They don't want to be doing it.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you what, when people tell me it's a choice, I, I, I tell them, when? <laughs> when did I make the choice? Because and, and, and if I did, why do you think, like, in your mind, I'm actually, I want your opinion on this. Why do you think I didn't choose to stop? You know, and and it's just such a it's one of those ideas that when you when you actually push on it, it makes no sense.
0: Well, the thing the thing about it is we. Yes, we make a choice to originally do it. You know, we make a choice to say, oh, yeah, I want to try it. It's cool. You know, whatever, whatever, put it in your hands, you know, originally and. I believe that the majority of us used it to self-medicate ourselves in one way, shape or form, you know, as, as the meth user, I felt life was dim. It was gloomy. I was depressed when I was young, I never felt a part of anything. And then all of a sudden meth was put in front of me and I tried it and just like, you know, you had said that, you know, this was back, you know, I kind of grew up during the Nancy Reagan, you know, that was the literally the just say no, mm-hmm. you know, motto and I couldn't imagine why people weren't doing it. <laughs> you know, I did this and I was like, "Oh my god, I have energy. I'm I can concentrate on stuff. I can focus. This feels amazing." What, what, what I'm 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 confused on what's wrong with this. <laughs> you yep. know, and uh And that's where, and that is where that choice, yes, begins, but I'm choosing to do it because it seems to be working. It's what I was hoping for. But then as I continue doing it, I do a lot, my brain changes, that choice is gone. There's no more choice in the matter.
1: Yeah, and I think that, yes, of course, there is a choice that is involved. You know, the, the thing that I go back to is if we know that only 10% of those who use are going to struggle with substance misuse, where else is a 90% chance of success seen as, oh, well, you're making a mistake, you know, or you go to a story like mine where, uh, you know, I, uh, for those who don't know my story, I I started struggling as a teenager uh, and really got into it as in my early twenties, on prescription medication after misdiagnosis, so was there a choice to use, you know, what we would call illegal substances? Of course, I, as you perfectly said, I was self-medicating with with cannabis. Uh, I was self-medicating with psilocybin. Uh, by the end of my time, when I wanted to party, I was using, you know, copious amounts of cocaine. Those were choices, but the choice that I made that led to my struggle was trusting a therapist. And so when you when you hear that story, and then it's really hard for someone to tell me that that I made a choice, you know, to, to, to struggle with substance misuse. So I, I think that it is one of those things that people like to say because then they can go, oh well, there by the grace of God, go I, right? I don't, I, I would never pick up a deadly whatever, but yet that person will go have a drink. And, and not think twice of it. Well, that's the same choice. It is literally the same choice. And just because you're able to do that safely doesn't mean you should look down on those those people who can
0: Absolutely. This is a great conversation. <laughs> think we should do this maybe more on a, you know.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Like I said on the intro that I never turned down an opportunity to speak. Uh, My assistant laughs at me sometimes because I I, I recently making a list of her for podcasts that I've been on in in places. And she went, who are these, you know, like these podcasts? Because some of these, I guarantee you, the only people listening are me, the host and the host's mom. But. Number one, if I can influence one person, it's worth it. And number two, if I can have a conversation with someone like you who just gets this, then then it really truly makes a difference because people are going to hear this and if they're, they're going to hear the nuance and they're going to go, okay, so maybe this isn't as black and white as I thought it was. And that's where you make the change.
0: So if I were to ask you, um, and again, you know, I'm not about I'm not about solutions. I don't think solutions um, exist because 100%. what works for you. May not work for me. If I come up with a solution, there's no point in thinking anymore on this because we've got it figured out. Right. Um, so, but if I were to ask you in a nutshell right now, um, what are ideas that you have on, on what we can do? Well, first
1: off, I got to say that when you and I first started chatting, that was something that I thought was really attractive about the opportunity to chat with you is that a lot of people come in with up. Oh, here's the solution. Here's what we have to do. And in reality, you're right. That's going to work for some or or maybe it won't, but it's definitely not going to work for everybody. In fact, that is the only solution that we have is we have to be open to new solutions. And we're, we're not really doing that right now. So it, it, in terms of my like ideas, being open to to new ideas is like the easiest thing we can do that we're not doing. And that means, number one, in, I mean, little things we just saw what in the last days of the Trump presidency, whether you like him or not, that's aside. This one move was a very uh, compassionate one. He he got rid of the waiver that people who wanted to uh, prescribe buprenorphine have to go to copious amounts of extra training because quite frankly, why is it that someone can prescribe an opioid like that coming out of med school, but you have to go to a lot of extra training to provide the medicine to help someone get off that opioid? It doesn't really make any sense. So he took away that waiver, which is something that harm reduction advocates have been screaming about for decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's number one. That was a huge move that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it will absolutely change the game when it comes to helping people get medications. Uh, Little things. I was working with a client who told me that the only uh, place he could get buprenorphine in his uh, area was halfway across town. And the guy was only giving him a week at a time. Can you imagine if, if you had cancer and you were going to get your chemo and you had to drive every week, half an hour out of your way, and then go back and try to resume your regular life? It would be a lot. It would be a lot of extra stress. And yet that's what we're doing for people struggling with substance misuse. So allowing more people to prescribe, uh, you know, in in having them in more areas, especially in smaller places that these, you know, out in the country have one place to do this. So having more access is another sort of low level thing that people don't really think about, but would make a world of difference. And so you're, you're noticing, I'm not really saying big solutions. All I'm saying is improvements because that is where we are right now. But I'm with you before we can think about, you know, solutions, we have to improve what we have.
0: Absolutely. Have you heard of, uh, uh, Voices, faces and Voices of Recovery?
1: I have, I actually was, was, was chatting with someone from them not long ago.
0: Yeah, so we had a, they had one of their reps that came out here and they were looking at, at starting uh, uh, one of the West Coast, you know, West Coast branch of it. And I remember hearing the guy talk and this guy was saying that, you know, 40% of people in recovery have never gone to rehab nor a 12 step program. And that's huge. You know, that's a huge, huge number there which, again, shows you that, you know, the ways that we can do this are vast. That one of their big topics is aftercare, which I think, again, is the biggest failure for rehabs for for people. You know, you can go in and you can lock yourself in a rehab for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and then you can get out. And then what do you do? Yeah, they have outpatient. So you can go to the outpatient, you know, for a period of time. But somewhere along the line, that just cuts, right it ends and um, and that's where i think the you know i know one of that's one of their big things is the support and assistance and trying to figure out ways that we can improve upon the aftercare yeah Um, and uh yeah i love what you said you know we got to start small we got to start with little things i mean there's no way that we can jump big into this thing you know the COVID thing has um you know the death rate overdose rate has just skyrocketed during this COVID and I know part of it too is that everybody seems to so have forgotten about it because now we're looking at all the the numbers of people that have passed away from COVID, um, which is huge. Yeah, but um, but we can't seem to we can't forget about this other group of people um, that are really struggling.
1: So it's it's funny you you bring up that comparison. I gave a virtual speech. Oh man, probably would have been June or so last year, and. Uh, I used to when I spoke, and I dropped that number 125,000, which by the way, uh, the estimates for 2020 is probably upwards of 135. So it was just a horrible year when it came to overdose and suicide. But I dropped that number 125. And I said, if that was happening, every year, it would, and anything else, it would be on the front page of the newspaper, we'd all be talking about it. And then I stopped. And I said, OK, clearly, I wrote that before COVID, because at the time we were already nearing that number and it, nothing was being really done. And I went, OK, I was wrong. Uh, and it was like a laugh moment because everybody realized that, you know, here we have a very similar issue. And the only thing we're doing is talking about it. We're not even doing that when it comes to these these deaths of despair. Occasionally you hear a story. There was actually one in NPR this morning. Uh, about deaths of despair is what the name that's been given to, you know, the, the combined number between sort of overdoses and uh, and suicides and other related deaths. Um, there's a, a Nick Kristoff, uh, is that his name, who writes for the New York times, uh, just wrote a book last year about these and, and there's a lot of different factors, but sort of everybody has ideas on what's causing them. No one is really doing much about trying to end them and you know, it's yes, it's super important to understand why they're happening. Of course, that's important, but but doing something about it once you have that information is more than half the battle.
0: But part of the part of the reason that it's never really talked about also is that everybody looks at it as a choice. You know, why are we gonna why are we gonna get bummed out and sad about people that are choosing to do heroin and then they die of an overdose? You know, and I think that's a big part of it. But yeah, a hundred percent, you're right. I mean, we we can we can, we can sit and we can focus on the problems, but maybe we do need to focus on the solution.
1: Yeah. Or and that's why I'm so encouraged. <laughs> yeah. uh, people like, um, oh man, uh, Beth Macy who wrote dope sick, which was an incredible book. And uh, oh man, dreamland by Sam Quinones, another incredible book. Uh, the data is there. The stories are there. We know this stuff. The question is, you know, we're all looking for our, our leaders to lead and they're not doing it. And, and someone asked me this the other day. I was on a show for advocates and they said, you know, are, are, do you believe that, uh, you know, that this can happen in the political realm? And I said, yeah, but we can't wait for it you know we can't keep voting and hoping these people do the things that we need them to do cuz it ain't happening we need to be making these changes in our everyday life and reach back and pull our politicians along with us that's why again i applaud people like peter cryken for going ahead and just doing it in in you know over in europe and and even the guys who were trying to open the the group in in philly safe house you know they kind of did it By just pushing and pushing and pushing until finally the local government said, great, we'll support this thing. And then of course the the neighborhoods uh, nimbied it out of existence. So they have to start all over. But this is how these things are going to get done. We can't wait for a fix for our from our governments. We got to pull them along with us.
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, hey, I wanna thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate it I think uh, you know, you've been a been fantastic guest and I also believe that having these conversations are really great You know, uh, super important and I think uh, we're definitely going to do this again at some point in time uh, we'll get, get you back on here <laughs> you name the time and place and I'll be there I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of High While Clean keep getting high but let's do it clean I'll see you guys soon thanks get back your story.